in our Advent series, we've been talking about uh, the women that are in Jesus' genealogy and their stories, which as we've gone through them, they, on the surface, they look super scandalous. But when you dig into them, you find out that they're actually uh, pretty remarkable stories of faith and trust in the promises of God. And today, we're going to pull back a little bit and actually look at the genealogy itself that all of the women are listed in and focus in more on the genealogy and what it is that the genealogy is trying to tell us. Uh, so that's our goal today. So if you would, if you're able, would you please stand as we uh, read together and listen together from God's inerrant word? This is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <coughs> Flannery O'Connor's short story, Revelation, it opens uh, with Mrs. Ruby Turpin, who's a genteel southern woman, who's brought her husband, Claude, into the doctors to fix an ulcer on his leg. And as she enters the waiting room, we see inside her mind as she begins to size everyone up according to her own internal moral taxonomy. And according to Mrs. Turpin, at the bottom of the moral taxonomy are the Negroes. Next to them are the white trash. Above the white trash are the respectable Negroes. And then there's the respectable whites, the homeowners. Then finally, Mrs. Turpin and her husband, Claude, who own a home and land and a business and a farm on that land. Above her are the rich white folks, but that starts to get confusing because even in her own town, there's some rich colored folks. There's even a dentist who owns two red Lincolns, and she doesn't know how to make sense of that. So she stops the list pretty much right there. She owns a home, she owns land, they have a little bit of everything on their farm, enough to get by, and she feels very blessed. They raise hogs, but not like the white trash raise hogs. They have a pig parlor, which means the hogs are able to stand on concrete pads so they don't get dirty like the dirty hogs of the white trash farmers. On the outside, Mrs. Turpin is as genteel and kind as can be. Uh, she makes it a point to be especially kind to all the worthless people who were below her because that's what Jesus would have her do. But on the inside, on the inside, we get to see her sizing everybody up accordingly as she comes into the waiting room. And as she sits down, across from her sits an 18-year-old girl with severe acne named Mary Grace, who also happens to be emotionally disturbed. And Mary Grace has the, the, the prescient skill of seeing right through Mrs. Turpin and her outer her exterior of kindness and gentleness, much like Grace does in real life. Uh, 
And when Mrs. Turpin finally exclaims, after long conversations with the various people in the waiting room, how grateful she is that God didn't make her a Negro or a white trashy, she follows it with a spirited oath, thank you, Jesus, Jesus, thank you. And Mary Grace, having had enough, takes her book, throws it at Mrs. Turpin and hits her square in the forehead and then jumps on her in a rage, clamping her hands around her neck, starts slowly choking Mrs. Turpin out. When the orderlies come and grab Mary Grace off of Mrs. Turpin and finally get her calmed down, Mrs. Turpin walks over to Mary Grace and says, what you got to say to me? And Mary Grace says, go back to hell from where you came, you old warthog. (laughs) Well, then Mary Grace goes her way. Mrs. Turpin and Claude go back to the farm, and the story continues as Mrs. Turpin on the farm Later that evening, going through her her evening chores, she's angry at God. Why would God allow something like that to happen to her, someone who is so good? And she asks God. She actually begins to yell at God. She begins to pick a fight with God. And she says, what you send me a message like that for? And then she says, why? Why me? There was plenty of trash there. Didn't have to be me. And then finally, she can't take it anymore. She clenches her fists and stares up at the heavens and says, who do you think you are? And then Mrs. Turpin goes into a trance and a vision catches her eye as the setting sun only has a few rays of light. The light forms a a ramp coming up off of the highway in a purple glow that seems to be going through living fire and through that living fire ascending into heaven. Mrs. Turpin at last lifts her head and she saw the streak of this bridge extending upward and upon it a vast horde of souls were tumbling towards heaven. There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives and bands of black Negroes in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics, shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people who she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and given the wit to use it right. So she leaned forward to observe them closer, They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were singing on key. And yet, she could see by the shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. Now, if we get honest, we all have a little bit of Mrs. Turpin inside of us. If you get really honest, even if you fight against it, everybody's got the moral taxonomy, not just about day-to-day life, but who's in and who's out with Jesus. Flannery O'Connor is a brilliant writer, so she's able to destroy this moral taxonomy by showing us, in short story form, what Jesus said, what Jesus meant when he said, that the first will be last and the last will be first. 
that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this passage, the genealogy of Jesus, that we've been looking at in depth all this Advent season, has been purposefully crafted by the Holy Spirit for the same purpose, (laughs) to kind of blow up our moral taxonomies, to blow up our ideas about who should be in and who should be out, just to completely stand on end uh, the, the tendency of our hearts to create a hierarchy of who's in with God and who's out with God, who does Jesus love more, who does Jesus love less, based on what we do, how pious we are, how we go to church, how we read the Bible, how we treat other people, how we treat all those worthless battalions of freaks and lunatics who are beneath us. Uh, The genealogy, as we've already seen, as we've been going through these individual women that are in there, it includes these people who we think shouldn't be here. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. And it says things about the people that we think should be there that throws us a curveball. And so what this passage does, what we're going to look at this passage, is it does three things. It tells us, first, that everyone is welcome to Jesus' table. Two, everybody's a sinner. And three, that everything points to Jesus. Real simple. So let's start with the first one. Everyone is welcomed at Jesus' table. There's a, a pastor that I follow named Ray Cortese at Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Florida. Uh, actually, our, our principal for Respres of practicing a beautiful orthodoxy came from a sermon that I heard him preach about creating something beautiful for God. Uh, at our, at our gen- Presbyterian, at the PCA General Assembly in 2013, one of the best sermons I ever heard. Uh, he makes it a point every year to use the very same sermon illustration in a sermon, and it's this. Most of you, most of you remember who Jeffrey Dahmer is. Anybody who's over a certain age remembers who Jeffrey Dahmer is. Jeffrey Dahmer was arguably the worst, most sadistic, twisted, evil cannibalistic serial killer in the history of American serial killers. Uh, And that's a long history. That's an august group of serial killers. To be on the top of that list, you really have to be something. Uh, He had deep, deep, deep deep-seated personality disorders, abusive family home, great uh, fears of abandonment and separation anxiety. And however that played out for Jeffrey in real life was that when young men came to visit him, he couldn't stand the thought that they would leave, so he killed them to keep them with them. And then he preserved them to keep him with them even longer. Eventually, Jeffrey was caught and put in prison. Threw away the key. What maybe you don't know about Jeffrey Dahmer's story, the surprising part, is that Jeffrey Dahmer... Uh, began to be discipled by a Christian mentor while he was in prison, ended up accepting the Lord Jesus, and walked with the Lord under the mentorship and discipleship of strong Christian men who were in prison up until the very day when he was murdered in the shower by other inmates, upon which time Jeffrey Dahmer 
one of the worst serial killers in all of history, ascended into glory. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the ooh. And here's the reason why Ray Cortese tells that story every single year. It's this. To the exact extent that that story disturbs you is the exact extent that you don't understand or believe in the gospel of grace. (laughs) Certainly not Jeffrey Dahmer. He's too bad. What does that mean? That means bad people go to hell, good people go to heaven. That's your operational, practical theology. David Berkowitz, son of Sam, killed five people in New York City. Same story. Came to Christ in prison. Still alive. Not David Berkowitz. He's too evil. Way beyond the reach of grace. And so he tells that story every year. I might start telling that story every year. Because nothing like that story, like nothing else I know, pulls out our belief or a disbelief in grace and the gospel of grace, in our belief that there are people who should not belong on Jesus' lists no matter what. And when ancient Israelites, when the people of Matthew's day, the people that Matthew wrote this article to, be, uh, to read, to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah, when they read this list, they would read Tamar, a Canaanite woman, who deceived her father-in-law into an incestuous relationship. Uh, What? She can't be on this list. Rahab, Canaanite, prostitute. Can't even say it in good company out loud. Not to mention that she betrayed her own people in service of the enemy. And Ruth, Ruth, Moabite, enemy of God's people, cannot be trusted, scandalous, immoral woman. There's no way she should be on this list. Ancient Israelites would be reading this genealogy, and they would be like, and then Jeffrey Dahmer gave birth to, or Jeffrey Dahmer and David Berkowitz and you name it, your favorite public Christian sinner, and they would say, no way. It would have freaked them out in the same way that you heard Jeffrey Dahmer was saved and is with the Lord in glory. When you get to heaven, we're going to be, what's up, Jeff? (laughs) Along with some other people that I guarantee you're going to be surprised are there. Yeah. So maybe you're saying, okay, 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 fine. Okay, Jesus' grace extends to all the battalions of lunatics and freaks. Okay, we're good. But at least we can have some of our heroes, right? We can still have some heroes of the faith, especially the top hero of all time, King David. We get King David on the list, right? And that's the second part. The second thing, the second purpose of this genealogy is everyone is a sinner. 
the deep-seated human desire to create heroes goes all the way back. You can trace it throughout all of recorded human history. Uh, ancient Sumerians to the Akkadians to the ancient Greeks had the pantheon of gods. Middle, medieval Christianity had the, the saints. Tim Massaro in our Sunday school class last year made this awful, awesome, compelling, awful and awesome, compelling point uh, that the Avengers movies are the modern parallel to the Greek pantheon. And the reason they're so popular is because we can't bring ourselves to believe in the Greek gods anymore, but at least we, we can believe in Iron Man. At least we can compartmentalize our minds and turn off our secular skepticism for a minute and at least relish and enjoy superhuman people everything we always hoped that we could be. Well, the funny thing about that is that when Stan Lee himself was in, in an interview I saw, they asked him, why do you think, what do you think made your characters what, what, so unpopular? A lot of comic book characters. Why did yours become these, this phenomenon? And he said, he said, because they were superheroes, but we showed the flaws. We showed their humanity. We showed them wrestling with hard issues and making bad decisions. We showed them doing wrong. They were, they were fallible. We showed their warts, their flaws, their sins. And because, because of that, they became very super relatable. And we obviously, we create heroes out of the, old, the Bible characters too. We see David, a man after God's own heart. He is arguably the greatest hero in the Old Testament. Hebrews 11, we look at Hebrews 11 and we, we put the tag on that, the great hall of faith. And some people even go so far to say the heroes of the faith. And we look to them and we're like, they, they had it together. They were superheroes of the Old Testament. David, King David, the man after God's own heart. Surely, victorious warrior, king, man of God, surely we get to keep King David as our hero. Yes, yeah. And Matthew says, nope, <laughs> not even David, sorry. Not even David. And how do we know that? Look what he says in six, verse 6b. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You know, the, the biblical texts are very sparse. They rarely give, like, extra detail. And when they do, there's a good reason for it. Out of all the things that Matthew could have said about King David, out of all the extraneous details that he might have put in this genealogy, the one thing he chose to write about King David was, and King David uh, was the father of Solomon, extra detail, by the wife of Uriah. They don't even name Bathsheba, by the wife of Uriah. And what is he trying to do? He's saying, he's taking us, it's a hyperlink, it's a New Testament hyperlink, he wants you to click on it and go back to the Old Testament story and remember the whole thing. 
Maybe you remember the story, maybe you don't. Let me give you some background. David, when he was in the wilderness, when King Saul was trying to kill him, when he was in his absolute most desperate time, he had 30 valiant men who had risked their lives to join him and to fight for him and to fight with him and to protect his life, to literally put their lives on the line to protect David and to be his best friends and confidants in the world. And among those 30 men was a man named Uriah the Hittite. Another piece of the story, one of David's most trusted men, one of his chief counselors, one of his top advisors, his very inner circle, was a man named Ahithophel. And Ahithophel had a granddaughter, and her name was Bathsheba. And Bathsheba was married to Uriah. She was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, maybe you're out there connecting the dots right now thinking, wait a minute, how did David have a kid? How did David have a kid, Solomon, with the wife of his best friend? Well, most of you know the story. David stole his best friend's wife. David then murdered his best friend to cover it up. Uh... And David's most trusted advisor, Ahithophel, sees it all go down with his granddaughter caught in the middle. We don't, know, we don't know a whole lot about Bathsheba. Israelite girl. She married one of David's best friends, a Hittite. Uh, unlike the other women in the genealogy, we don't really see her in the forefront. But we see her in the background. And what we do know about her is we know that she's a young girl who's victimized by a powerful man. We know that she loses her husband, and she know, we know that she's forced into a life with the man who abused her and killed her husband against her will. And surely, an Israelite girl in that position would have had to lean hard into God to get through that kind of life. But the point of the story is focused on David. The point of the story is to say that not even the great King David, not even David can be our hero. Just like all the battalions of freaks and lunatics that have come before him on the genealogy, David's in the same boat. David is a sinner just like everybody else. You know, we have to have our heroes, but there aren't any. There aren't any heroes. Abraham Lincoln, big hero. Abraham Lincoln, abolitionist. Abraham Lincoln almost single-handedly saw the evil of, of racism and slavery and fought to abolish such an awful, awful, awful evil. Well, here's what Abraham Lincoln had to say about his own perspective on it. He said, I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. I am not, nor have ever been, in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor of intermarrying with white people. 
I will say in addition that, this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be a position of superior and inferior. And as I much as any other man am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. There aren't any heroes. We want heroes. But they're not. Everybody's a sinner. And so what does that mean? We are without hope. No one, no, one, no one steps up. No one can step up to lead us. No one, there's no one, is there no one that we can look to? We can't have any heroes, not even one. Fortunately, we can. We can have one hero. The only hero there is. And that's the point, really, of this genealogy. There's only one hero and the only hero of the story is Jesus, and everything points to him. The whole purpose of the genealogy is just moving down the generations. This God and Holy Spirit is interweaving the utter depravity of the human condition in and through the genealogy of Jesus, not to create heroes for us to worship, but to show us that everybody is in the same boat, that we are all fallen short of the glory of God, that we have all sinned, that everyone is in desperate need of one hero that God is providing through his son, Jesus. The whole purpose of the genealogy, Matthew breaks it down into six sevens, and then Jesus is the last one. Jesus is the seventh seven. He's the ultimate. He's the divine blessing. Now, Funny thing is, we read the genealogy, everybody skips the genealogy, right? You just kind of glaze over it. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Herzon, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Blah, blah, blah. Wah, 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 wah. And you kind of glaze over it and you run on, right? But the genealogy is there for a purpose. These purposes are very specific. And it teaches us not only the true condition of humanity, um, that we're all in the same boat, but the other purpose of the genealogy right up front is to tell us something even more important, that this story is true. When I, every night, my favorite part of the day is I, it's the end of the day, when we finally are able to get our kids' teeth brushed and in their jammies, which usually takes about an hour and a half, we finally are able to sit down in bed and I get to read stories. We read stories to my kids. We went through all the Harry Potter series. You guys know by the illustrations that I use. We went through Harry Potter. We went through Lord of the Rings. We went through Narnia. Uh, we're now reading Percy Jackson and the Olympi Olympians. And, and we read those stories. And every time we finish one, we finish a big series or we finish a big you know, a big chunk of books. We finish Lord of the Rings and we're like, oh my gosh, it's so amazing. Well, I did. You guys weren't all super into it this time, but you will be in high school, trust me. And we finish, we finish Harry Potter and we're like, oh, my. you're like, you're elated. Your soul is like lifted up. You go to bed like, 
almost glowing. Why? Because you realize that it, in the story, good wins in the end. And it tells you, it just resonates with something deep in your heart. You're like, yes, I know it. Somehow good is going to win in the end. And then you go to sleep, and you wake up the next day, and the ambiguous somehow good is going to win starts to fade out, and life hits you in the face. <laughs> and then you're back to, I don't know. The somehow. That's what's so beautiful about all those stories. It's like they kindle that realization in our hearts that we know somehow good is going to win in the end. But how? That's a big question. I mean, how is good going to win in the end? I mean, the stories, the myths, the great stories, they like give us inklings of it, but they're all ambiguous. It's a big ambiguous somehow. If we could just, if we could just know how, if we could actually find the story of how good wins in the end, wouldn't that be the most beautiful story ever told? Wouldn't it be amazing? And that is what's so important about this genealogy. The genealogy is saying, hey, these are real people. This is real time and space. These are real locations. These are real historical events. This is not another story about the Greek gods or another ambiguous mythology about somehow good will win in the end. This, the gospel that follows this genealogy is the story that all those other stories get their power from because this story is real. The gospels tell the real story of how good wins in the end. Jesus is the great hero. The world falls into crisis and sin and death, and Jesus does battle with evil on the cross. Jesus seems like he's going to lose in death. And then in one miraculous moment in the resurrection, Jesus comes from the dead and gains victory over death, victory over sin, victory over evil. And good wins out in the end, and we all live happily ever after. It's the story. It's the one. It's a real story of how good wins in the end. So let me end this by saying, you could believe in, if you really wanted to, in some of the derivative stories and really set your heart on those things. Some of the derivative stories will allow you to continue to hold on to the death that you're mistaking for life, but you don't have to. Because we know the original story, the story that's true, the story of how good wins in the end through Jesus, and it is the most beautiful story ever told. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your word. Lord, lots of stories about, lots of stories about gods that expect you to die for them, but you are and the gospel is the only story where God comes to die for his people. And so, Lord, we can't even imagine, we can't even imagine what you experience becoming a man, becoming a human and suffering through everything that we suffer through. Even to the point of death, even to the point of the most humiliating death, we sure are grateful for it, Lord.
We thank you for coming and saving us. We pray that you would help us to remember that. We're not the hero of the story. You are. The quest is already completed. You have already won. And I pray that you would help us to rest in that. In Jesus' name, amen.